Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today, I am so excited because I have a guest that I have been stalking on social media for like forever because I basically love every single thing she says. And I'm so excited to actually be in conversation with her. We have Maggie Nick, who is, you might know her as Maggie with Perspectacles and Parenting with Perspectacles on Instagram. She's a recovering people pleaser, a recovering perfectionist, a good kid turned therapist. We have that in common. With her revolutionary insights, she's a thought leader in healing low self-worth, shame, and parenting. She's the founder of Parenting with Perspectacles, a parenting and reparenting framework to help parents of toddlers to teens find their way through the hardest, most triggering moments of parenting. Do you guys see why I wanted to talk to her? With the tools and insights to help both their child and their inner child feel seen and loved. So I am so excited to talk with you today, Maggie, because I feel like So many times I see something you post on Instagram and I'm just like in my chair going, yes, yay, exactly. I feel seen and heard. So I'm so excited for us to have this conversation. The first thing, the first question I want to ask you is, can you share in terms of your journey into this, what was your first aha moment into, oh, I need to become a cycle breaker? Oh, that's a good question. So I have some like SVU type trauma from childhood. And I really thought that was what was my like origin story. Like that's the thing. And so I like had been in therapy and we'd identified that my mother was toxic. And that was really enlightening. And but like we we're still kind of working through that. And so I just kind of had held out that like, okay, once I go in and I like work through this SVU type trauma, I'm going to feel better. And then I didn't. And I just remember being like, if it's not that, then what the hell is it? Why do right. I have this compulsive need to like worry so much and be so hyper vigilant? And like at the time I was like in grad school. And so I'm like, actually, it was, I guess it was just before grad school. And so I had a, I knew that trauma had the biological markers and I was starting to like tick off, you know, that like when you see hyper vigilance, when you see an exaggerated startle response, like that's a trauma thing. So I was like, so there's trauma here. If it's not that, what is it? And I feel like every road kept leading back to parenting and specifically every road kept leading back to shame in parenting. Be like, nothing I feel is ever good enough. Nothing I do is ever good enough. There's something wrong with me. I don't deserve love for this reason and that reason. What will people think about me? Oh God, they'll be so let down and disappointed. It's like, I live my life with all of that stuff. And it was like, every time we would kind of pull a thread all the way down, it would come right back to that. And I was like, oh boy. So I'm here today as the founder of my own parenting framework, which I, I would have, if you had told me 10 years ago, this is your future, I wouldn't have believed you. Like I, I was just terrified of effing up my kids. That's literally why I'm here. Yes. I like delved into the literature when I was in grad school and I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. If I, yes. I cannot have children if I do not heal, like I won't do that to my kids. And so I just, I was like, I've got to figure out, is it possible to raise kids who actually feel good enough? 
is it possible to raise kids who aren't 29 in therapy being like, please teach me how to feel my feelings? Like, how does yes. one do that? I feel like so that's why. what you're saying is such a reflection for me of my journey that I didn't know I was on until I was well on it. And for me, I always think of it as my kids were my mirror. They were my map. They were my motivator. You know, like when I saw, especially when you talk about estrangement, right? When I saw how I was around certain people, and then I saw my kids' reactions because stressed out me and really dissociated me is not me, me. And I had that. And then my kids, and then, and they would mirror that back to me, right? Because like when you're in the stressed out, dissociated, not attached to yourself, you know, state, especially when you're parenting toddlers, they're going to get dysregulated. It's going to be like a hard day that gets harder and harder. And they would mirror that back to me. And then it was like, no, I have to do this differently because I'm not going to repeat this. Like what you said is so resonant to me because, yeah, the goal is to raise kids who, if they do need to be in therapy, and maybe they will, I kind of feel like everybody should be in therapy for something. We're all going to mess up a lot. It's okay. Yeah, we're going to mess something up. But they're not going to be in therapy from a deep sense of I wasn't loved. My parents didn't take responsibility. They didn't repair with me. They didn't value me for who I authentically was. Like that won't be the reason why they're in therapy. And like this deep sense that I don't deserve love, which has been one of the hardest for me to like uncover and heal. And there's something wrong with me. Those two have been like the hardest. I spent 16 years of trauma therapy later. I'm like finally getting somewhere. Yes. Yeah, but like I, I, I carried that with me, that like deep, deep fear, like a, almost like a core value that like yes. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. I'm a yes. failure. Like I was just talking to my business partner about this. I was like, why is it that I, anytime something goes wrong, I assume it's me, right? I'm like, yes. well, clearly I messed up. Clearly it's my fault. Like that's what I don't want my kids to do. That has been so freaking hard to heal that. That's like yeah, one of my, had, if is. I do nothing else, I will break those cycles for my children. They will not have that trauma. Yes. I think that that's so valuable and beautiful. Like your kids are so lucky and everybody who watches you on Instagram's kids are so mm-hmm. lucky because the more we can do that, right? Like the more, when it becomes that clear, like me not healing means these outcomes, then there really is no choice. Like sometimes we think we have a choice about certain things until it's brought up to us, like I said, a mirror, you know, like there's no choice here. It's this or that. It can't be this and that. So which yep. is it? Yep. Well, and I think I was so excited when I found out my first was who's now eight, almost nine, was a girl because I was like, okay, I have a lot of reparenting work to do. This is going to be yeah. important and magical. And it is magical, but my God, it is so much more brutal than I expected. Like I thought when I gave her the mother... The, the regulated, loving, without conditions mother who saw her and saw her worth, I thought it would feel so good. And it does. But it also picks me so deep in my gut every time. Yes. It's like I am just the contrast of like what I'm giving versus what I got. It like gives me goosebumps just even to think about yeah. it. I wasn't prepared for how hard it was going to be. But I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand, and I just had this conversation with clients in my office this morning. It feels like parenting is so hard. I'm so freaking exhausted. You're honestly going to give me this whole set of things to take on too? Are you kidding me right now? Yeah. Which what we need to understand is that when I show up and I notice, like lately, one of my things that I'm healing right now is my abandonment trauma. 
the deep, okay. deep well of abandonment trauma for me. I got the silent treatment a lot as a kid that love withdrawn and withheld from me. And so I'm working on that right now. And so I am noticing that parts of me want to withdraw from them. It would like feel very satisfying in a really messed up way to like withdraw. And that's yeah. part of how our brains heal, right? Our brains need to explore this and be like, hmm, what would it be like to be a parent in this situation? Maybe I'll understand why my parents did that to me now. Maybe that'll be the answer I'm seeking and I'll finally heal. And so I'm not a bad mom that I have that impulse and I keep it in check and I set boundaries with that part of me and I don't let it hijack me and take over. But every time I sit with that and I think, huh, a part of me wants to silent treatment my kid. Like if I don't do the work and process that, it's just going to keep re-traumatizing me while simultaneously traumatizing my kids. Like yes. when parenting, reparenting is the exact same work. The words, and that's a, really a big part of why I'm here is because I was working so much on inner child healing with grownups and being like, what would happen if we took these scripts and just said them to our kids? It's helping these grownups so much. Like, what if we just said it to our kids? And so when you show up and explore that thing that's triggering you, setting you off and putting you right to where you're flirting with rage. Not only are you breaking that cycle for your kids, but you get to lay that down. You don't have to carry that shit anymore. Yeah. You get to heal it. Like you're unburdening yourself too. It's not like there's no impact on you. We heal ourselves when we do this. We make ourselves less anxious, carry less shame. We don't have to hustle as much for our worth. We get to lay down people pleasing and perfectionism and worrying and being a control freak and all the stuff, right? Like not just for our kids, it's for us too. Yeah. Like when we let rage and we ask rage what it wants and like we have yes. that conversation, I literally will sit. I use like my inside out um, like figurines and I'll literally mm -hmm. sit with them and be like sadness. I'm having a lot of sadness right now. I'm like sadness. What do you want to tell me? It's also so normal to be jealous for our inner child to be jealous of the parenting that our physical child is having. And I find that underneath <clears throat> the jealousy, at least for me, is a deep pool of sadness. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Like, and almost like despair sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes I have to acknowledge it. For a long time, I didn't want to acknowledge my, my jealousy of my own children. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that I would have this moment, just what you were saying, where I'll consciously observe myself doing something like gold star mama moment. Like I am like, you know, responding exactly consistent with my values and I'm having a stress response, but I'm handling it beautifully and we're co-regulating. We're really doing it well. Like it's like, yay. And then I suddenly had that, I would feel exhausted. And under the exhaustion I discovered was jealousy and under the jealousy was so much mourning and so much sadness. 100%. And I think the other side of that jealousy is... One of the insidious ways the generational trauma gets perpetuated unless we intentionally and consciously show up to break it is that whole like, well, that happened to me and it didn't it didn't affect me. Right. Yeah, and fine. I think the like, right. And I the way I see that as a clinician is like, I'm going to be defended against seeing the impact of me giving the silent treatment to my kids until I sit with how that affected me. I'm not going to be able I'm going to be un incapable of seeing the impact I'm having on my child because that feels too painful for parts of me. They're going to try to keep that way down and protect me from that pain. Yeah. And so I have to be brave enough to be like, well, how did it feel for me when I did that? And so I think the other side of that, like jealousy is honestly like a healthier way to work with this because 
when we just dismiss it and minimize it and it's fine, it's fine, I'm fine, they'll be fine. I think that's one of the ways that generational trauma sneaks in. So I think actually acknowledging that you feel jealous and holding space for the parts of you that are like, damn, I needed that. And I'm kind of annoyed that like they get it and I don't, they don't even know the half of it, right? They don't know what I've been through. They're sitting here complaining about it. And I'm like, do you even know what a day of my childhood was like? Right. You know? Right. It's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you an incident that happened to me in clinical therapy many years ago. I was working, and of course I'm changing details, but I was working with a teenager who was, she was just one of those people who's naturally a funny person but holding on to deep pools of pain. And she came in because of self-harm and very, very unsupportive parents trying to hold back on my judgment brain here, but like very unsupportive. And, you know, as many times as I asked her if anything had happened to her, you know, in terms of like you say, SVU type trauma, and she always said no. But there were other traumas. She had been bullied. There were other things we were dealing with that we were working through. And we had a really good relationship in therapy. And I thought we were doing quality therapeutic work. And then I happened to be testifying in a, in a trial where I was the outcry witness a, and a, the child who was in the situation actually you know, signed consent. He wanted me to testify. I was the first person who was disclosed to that he was being molested by a teacher. And there are all sorts of exceptions as a school psychologist. There's all sorts of laws around that. But I was not only was I compelled legally and ethically to testify, he gave his wholehearted consent. By the time the case went to trial, he was of an age where he could consent. And he very much wanted, you know, his confidence. He wanted to waive his rights to confidentiality. It was a very publicized trial. I was on TV. And of course, my patients saw it because why wouldn't they? And this girl comes into therapy. Remember, we knew each other well and we were doing quality work. I had helped her confront her bully and like, you know, have some real success experiences and push back. I had helped her set boundaries with her parents. And she's like, I don't know why everybody makes such a big deal about the whole like, you know, inappropriate touch thing. Somebody in my life has been doing this for me for years and I'm fine. And I remember being like, because she said it sideways, it slipped out. And I remember just thinking like, you burn yourself on purpose with matches multiple times a day. You are on many, many, many levels not fine, right? But that level of denial, right? And like, she's fine, right? Yeah, the bullying wasn't okay. The way her mom talked to her wasn't okay. The way her teacher treated her wasn't okay. Like those things she wanted to talk about in therapy and those things she made, you know, progress on. But this... This was fine. Yeah. Well, I think our brain does that. Internal family systems is the framework that just revolutionized my work and my personal healing journey. And I think there are times that the pain that our body knows that it's deep, deep trauma and it would completely destabilize, right? And decompensate the system. And so I think it puts it over there and it's like, it won't let our head turn past center because it's like, no, no, no. And sometimes our brain is very invested and keeping us from that trauma. And it really won't allow us to see that trauma until we have support and until we've released the shame, right? Until we've kind of come to a place where we can handle it. You know, it's crazy how many times in therapy, you feel like you're just like talking about nothing. And you're like, what, what, what are we doing here? And then all of a sudden, once they feel safe, they'll drop it, you know? Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's, that's what's going on. (laughs) I say this all the time about treating kids. It's just not going to be linear. And that's totally okay. This is also why I hate when people talk about like big T traumas versus small T traumas. What Mm -hmm. we might call the big T trauma might not be the trauma. Like you were talking Mm -hmm. about coming to terms with like the parenting stuff. 
for me, my father was very sick when I was growing up, like had multiple, could have been fatal heart attacks many times, was, you know, constantly in and out of the hospital. And people will talk about like, you know, I can tell the story of the trauma of the day he died when I did CPR on him, how I developed PTSD. That's a story that's clearly traumatic in a big, big T trauma kind of way. Mm -hmm. But what was actually traumatic about my childhood was I felt this incredible pressure, and I'm not sure that anybody consciously gave it to me, to make my father happy, to keep the home environment calm, to keep everything, like to be good. To be good. Everything at, keep everything copacetic and happy and be very, you know, productive and like, you know, keep the peace. That in some ways, and I really don't think, certainly my mother did not consciously Right. Create this. But I took this on. I think there were other family yeah. members who did, but I took this on. That was so much more traumatic to like study really hard for a subject that I don't care about because I can't be okay with the 92. I must get above a 95 because my father values academics and I must bring home that grade. No one told me that. Right. Yeah. But that I took that on. So when I'm watching my child be like, yeah, I just don't care about that subject all that much. So like I'll study and I'll pass. But like, eh, good enough's good enough. That sense of jealousy, you know, I, it took mm-hmm. me a long time to sort of come to terms with it and, you know, deal with the parts that were like, well, a good person wouldn't be jealous of a kid, you know, and like, well, I'm a good person and I'm jealous because I'm allowed to feel how I feel. This. Yep. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think to your point about big T and little T trauma, like, in my opinion, like, for almost all trauma, especially childhood trauma, it's not the thing, it's the shame about the thing. Like, shame is big T trauma in and of itself. And so people, so, so it doesn't happen as much anymore, I guess I've learned how to explain it. But in the early days of my framework, I would have parents be like, I love your work, but I, I don't shame my kids. I'm like, oh, you do. <laughs> I shame my kids. It's a daily battle. It's so sneaky. It's everywhere, right? But when we when we make our kids, like, it is so easy to make your kids feel like there's something wrong with them without even saying a word, yes. just a look. I have this really, really sneaky, vicious look. And if I get triggered, yeah. often with disrespect seems to be the big one. I can shoot this look and I'm like saying with my eyes, there's something wrong with you right? When we don't meet them where they are developmentally, and we often talk about caterpillars and butterflies, like we're butterflies, our kids are not. Yeah. And we've got to adjust our expectations. Like, I really think a lot of what you're describing is adult roles, adult expectations placed on a child. So you were essentially a a caterpillar (laughs) expected to be a butterfly. Yes. And shamed and made to feel like there was something wrong with you and like you didn't deserve love and like everybody was so disappointed in you for not being able to have the capabilities of a butterfly. Yes. You know, that is so sneaky and insidious, but it it is a lifelong journey to heal that stuff. That's why I talk so freaking much about shame. Yes, because it's true that overall sense of shame is the thing that freezes us, that stops us, that doesn't allow us to even when we know a cycle we need to break, like let's say, okay, I'm breaking people pleasing, right? I, I've got to stop the people pleasing. I need to say no. But that shame will just come. It'll hijack our brain out of nowhere. Well, and shame tells us you don't get to have needs. When you yeah. say what you feel, love goes away. Yeah. I can't let you do that because it's too risky. No. And that's like, it annoys me how I'm just, apparently I'm just venting today. Sorry, Robin. 
I feel like a lot of people in the parenting space are like, just let your kids feel their feelings or you should just feel your feelings. I'm like, great. How about the go upstream and figure out why you bottle your feelings in the first place? It's almost always shame. Can I just say one thing about that word? I hate the word just. I always say there's a sign in my office that says just as a four letter word. I don't let parents use it with their kids. Just touch it. It's not germy. Like, you know, especially like at the beginnings of OCD or something. Yeah, you're not allowed to. In fact, I've even done (laughs) things where I make people do push ups if they say just like I have a mom and I'm like, every time you (laughs) drop and give me 10 push ups, we don't say the word just because just Mm -hmm. is a four letter word. Because you like that's like 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 someone I don't know, you can't see how tall I am, but I'm barely five feet. That's like if you, you would say to me, just, you know, dunk the basketball in like there's a basketball dunk it in just do it Um, without a ladder. That's not happening. Right. It's right. no just just can't climb Mount Everest, you know, just, you know, stand on right. your head, you know. OK, but I never took gymnastics. I can't stand on my head. Right. Like yeah. it's a loaded word. word. Such a loaded word. I really I just have such a strong feeling with it. Sometimes we say just when we mean simply mm-hmm. and simply can be OK, provided like it's a relationship of a lot of trust. And, you know, sometimes as a therapist, you know, how do I tell her no? In the end, you simply say no. You don't have to say anything else. No, today's yeah. not a good day, right? Like sometimes we want to say simply meaning you don't have to dress it up and you don't have to like right. you know, apologize for it. But don't say just. It's never just. That's so true. Well, and I think just is almost like a self-shaming word or it's a shaming person. It's just kind of a minimal like this is so easy. What is wrong with you that this is so hard for you kind of thing? Right. Like if this would be so easy, you wouldn't be sitting here in my office if it's it's so easy for everybody, right? Just walk out the door, right? Like I, I've right. Had, I've had you know patients who get stuck in doorways. Just take a step out of the door, okay? Right? If you can't, though, then it's really not just right? right. But how? Well, and yeah. there's there's a system that is invested in not feeling your feelings. There's a whole infrastructure in place based on messaging, and I believe compliance-driven, shame and fear-based discipline from childhood being the big daddy of all of this. You know, there's a reason why you can't speak your needs. There's a reason why you bottle your feelings. That's not random. You weren't necessarily, I mean, I think kids can kind of trend different ways based on like biology. And I really honestly go back to generational trauma. Like my daughter, we talk about being a good kid. It's been hard for me in my healing journey to know how much is me and how I always would have been and how much is my narcissistic borderline mom and her trauma. And I do think like my daughter is a lot like me. She is. And every day she would be a good kid. It would be, I honestly fight every day to just like, nope, yeah, we're not going to do that. You don't have to be good. And it's like this very intentional thing. So I do think kids can be born with that, but I think it's really generational trauma that's kind of handed down over like, it doesn't go well for us. When we cause trouble, we have a parent who's emotionally unstable, who harms us, who, right? And so I think it's so important for us to get perspectacles on the whole be good thing. It's really just a complete paradigm shift. What parents see as disrespect in children is like an everyday thing for parents, like grownups. Like you and I are allowed to be in a pissy mood. We're allowed to be kind of snarky, kind of annoyed. But when it's our kids, we call it disrespect and we shut them down and we punish them for it and often shame them for it. Yes. Right? And and it's so true because 
And also, I think, like, especially when I'm dealing with post-traumatic parents, there's a lot of times that fear of, but if I don't teach them what will happen, right, the world will punish them, you know, the world will come, which to some extent you're right, right, because there will be that teacher or that coach or that principal or, you know, who will. So the fear is real, but then we also don't want them to lose sight of who they are, how they're feeling, you know, their ability to give a signal like, you know, right now I don't want to talk about it or right now, you know, I'm not in the mood of relating to people or whatever, like the signal they want to give is. I feel like people create this false dichotomy where it's either a disrespectful, entitled brat of a kid or this compliance-based, you must do exactly as I say, the minute I say it, like form of parenting. I'm like, there's no middle ground. There's no thought of a kid who's genuinely kind, caring, and connected and also can honor the signals of their own body. Like that somehow is never possible. Right. Well, and I mean, I'm sure you get the same trolls I do about all that stuff. It's so funny because often when I describe to parents the level of leadership I'm asking for them that our children desperately need, they're like, whoa. Like, I'm like, no, the second time you say no, we're going to move into like making it happen taking the toy out of their hand, helping them down from the thing, right? right? Like, we're not going to be a doormat. We're going to be like the opposite of that, but we don't have to do that with shame. We don't need to scare our kids, threaten our kids, intimidate our kids, punish our kids into compliance and obedience. And there's this whole misunderstanding about the word respect. Like, I think the good kid thing, which is a thing that I, I never, when I posted the first good kid video, I had no idea. It went very viral. I just remember being like, this is crazy. How many people just like me out there? And I think when our one and only measure of what it is to be a good parent is how respectful they are. First of all, they're not respecting you. They're scared of what will happen right. if they don't. That's not respect. Two, the amount of shame and fear that we have to use to override our child's biological tendencies to release stress when they're stressed out, which looks like resistance. It looks like disrespect. The pushback, I need to resist you right now. It crushes them. It devastates. Like kids, I often say kids resist to release, to regulate. What we want, I don't want a good kid. I want a regulated child. I want a child who gets overwhelmed and then is able to do what they need to do to regulate down. Because my child, when they're at a three out of 10, is able to like put their shoes on. My child at a seven out of 10 is dysregulated. They have 30% bandwidth and 10 is where their body is going to force a release. So they move yeah. into like pushing back here. And I think like the, if I could zoom out to like 30,000 feet, the reason there are so many good kids out there is because our parents, I think, and I can't fault them for this, believe that they their job was they were a good kid they're a good parent if they had a good kid right and so every sign of disrespect they shut it down but if we shut down the disrespect then we also shut down our child's ability to release stress and regulate right right because the resistance is the release and the release is how they regulate oh don't even get me started on that yes i feel like whenever we get into that word disrespect where does respect come into it? You know what I mean? Like, it's like not even comparing apples and oranges. It's like comparing like apples and like Teslas. Like it, it doesn't, mm-hmm. we're not, where does respect come in to that conversation? Because I feel like I know a lot of kids who are safe kids who are parented by cycle breakers, who 
naturally are respectful in the sense that they know how to talk to people, they know how to engage socially, they know how to calmly and confidently state their needs, they know how to engage, and they come across as quite respectful, but that's because they're safe people and they feel safe. This and they're idea regulated. That, that, yeah, they're regulated. This idea that respect even comes into it, to me, is already, you know, why are we even talking about respect? I, I guess I see this very clearly because, like, you know, in child psychotherapy, a lot of times you have a parent who comes in and the kid's not answering. Like, you know, and the parent will say something like, answer the lady. He's not ready to answer me right now. That's okay. Right. I can sit on the floor next to him until he's ready to talk to me. This isn't about respect. Like, the unspoken thing in that is, like, you're being disrespectful. This grown-up right. asked you a question. You didn't answer her. Right. Like, it's not about respect. Like, respect. But like, I can tie a straight line from that right back to shame because it all comes back to shame. It's like, what are people going to think about my kid if they're disrespectful? What are people going to think about me as a parent if my kid acts like that? It's always back to shame. Like we have made it our life's mission to be good parents. And we can only be good parents if our kids are also good and they never challenge us and they listen the very first time. Basically, they're scared of what will happen if they don't. That's not respect. And yes. if we think like the closest thing, because I'm estranged from my parents, like the closest thing I can access right now is a like supervisor. We think about a supervisor who threatens us and intimidates us. Do you really respect them? No. The leaders we respect are the ones who respect us, who like meet us where we are and they hold us accountable. And there's sometimes consequences in our work if we don't get things done on time. Right. Right. Doesn't mean that there's no accountability, but as a leader, which I think as a parent is our number one job, as a leader, we've got to lead with respect and we have to be keeping our eye on the impact we're having on our child. Right. Like I had a parent just the other day who was talking about like bragging about their their partner had booked a coaching session. And so the the non-cooperative partner was on on the but we we turned it around. But was like bragging about, I can look at them one time and they stop. And I'm like, hey, like, that's not a badge of honor. Like, you don't have to do that. You can own the hell out of your no without shaming them, without threatening them, without intimidating them, without punishing them. Like my kids know, I mean, no, like they don't, they have no thoughts that they could turn my mind around. I mean, when appropriate, right? If I like make a quick no, but like, they know that I am a solid, it is a solid freaking boundary when I say no. They don't have anything to resist. And the ironic thing, actually, is that the parents who focus so much on disrespect and like want a respectful kid often have the most disrespectful kids. Because right. they're trying to take a caterpillar, and make it a butterfly, like not possible. But I remember the first time this happened, and it's happened many times since then, my kids push back all the time. Like they push back and they speak their mind and they, they rise up and they tell me how they're doing inside. And somebody might peek into our window and be like, good Lord. But it's not like I'm like, oh, you're right here. You can have it. It's like I said no. And they get to have thoughts about that. They get to be disappointed or mad or frustrated or sad. But I remember the first time at our pool, one of the people who work at the pool were like, your kids are so good. And I was like, don't say that. (laughs) Don't say that. You know, but I think what they're seeing, and I get this a lot now, what they're seeing is that my children are regulated. When they're regulated, they have access to impulse control, right? They can relatively control themselves, but like that doesn't mean there there aren't times 
where they are pushing back and we're in resist mode and we're having a meltdown. And like, that is a fundamental human need to release stress. And we picture blowing into a balloon. At some point that balloon pops if you don't release the stress. And if we never let our kids resist us, then their balloon is like about to pop all the time. And you mentioned dissociation. I, I think of dissociation as the balloon is at capacity, stretched beyond its limits, but somehow it, it can't pop and it can't right. release stress. It just has to somehow take on more. And so I think that's where it takes us offline consciously. So yes. we can like be there unconsciously and like have a conversation, drive a car, but our brain can't take any more in. Like that's not a good thing. Yes. <laughs> I actually say this to teachers sometimes, you know, before I was doing this kind of clinical work, I had a lot of training in behavior therapy. I don't do it anymore, but I had a lot of training you know that it is the easiest thing in the world to shut down a behavior or to motivate a behavior. I mean, if I take a gun and I hold it to your head, I can get you to do pretty much anything, right? Like, it's not hard. And a gun might be, you know, a threat of something, right? Like, not hard to shut down a behavior. It's not hard to start a behavior. What takes skill? So when a parent tells me, like, I can start a behavior, I can stop a behavior, eh. What takes skill is, can I help my child learn a new skill and either contribute to or preserve our relationship? Because anybody can start or stop a behavior. That's just easy. I say this to teachers yeah. when I, you know, watch classes. I'm like, anybody can get a class to be quiet. It's not that hard, you know, to like fear and shame a group of little second graders into being quiet. Can you do that and build the relationship? Then you're a good teacher. If you can just get them to be quiet, eh, okay. That well, and I think anything. that's like, oftentimes parents, when I describe like letting your kids have the release, allowing the resistance while holding the boundaries, they're like, I'm not signing up for that, through that. What was really surprising to me at some point, probably like when my oldest was like three-ish, three's hard, man. The moments where I get frustrated and I get triggered and my behavior does not look the way I want it to, right? Where I'm like tempted to withdraw or I yell Or the moments where my kid yells at me, right? And we're having that repair. We're circling back to repair. When I get to have that moment with my kid and be like, wow, we're having a hard time with each other today. It's okay for us to be frustrated with each other. You don't deserve to be treated that way. And I'm sorry. Yeah. And I also don't deserve to be treated that way either. And then my kid, when they're ready, says, I'm sorry. Honestly, those are the best moments in parenting. It's not when things are going well. It's when it's a show and like we come back and we like have this moment of seeing the impact we've had and like connecting on that level where there's no like keeping up appearances and there's no sweeping stuff under the rug. Like that is gold. Those moments are, and in terms of being close with your kid, like those moments draw you so much closer than when it's good. Yeah, for sure. That repair. And I think it's another thing that post-traumatic parents don't know. It's like, I have so many people in my classes who tell me, like, I'm never going to mess up. I can't. I can't do it. Like, they're working so hard to be perfect because they really believe, because maybe their own ruptures haven't been repaired, that there's no possibility of repair. You can repair. You can always repair. Even, like, insecure attachment can be repaired. Mm -hmm. Like, if you feel like I was not present for the first three years of my kid's life, okay, so there's something called earned security. You can repair now. You have that ability. Nothing set in stone. I mean, I think sometimes I, I take, you know, responsibility for like, you know, the research aspect of my profession where like people will read the impl- a study and the implications of it and think that like it's all over, you know, never all over. We 
always, and the healthier we are and the more work we do, we can always repair. Not everybody's willing to repair with us. Like when we think of estrangement, like there are sometimes people who just can't accept a boundary, but repair would be possible if there would be a partner on the other side. Right now, though, I'm going to focus on the repair with my kids, but or the repair with a friend. But relationships can always be repaired if you're willing to do the work of repair. Oh my gosh, yes. Well, and for me, never getting an apology for my yeah. parent and always apologizing, even when I d- hadn't done anything wrong. Yeah, and they were mad at me for a reason that didn't make any sense. Like repairing was hard for me in the early days. Felt like I don't know. I would rather like swallow sand. It was so hard at first because I was so freaking tired of apologizing. Yes. You know, I was really tired of being the parentified child. Right. And so I'd been the parent all through my childhood. And so then I become a parent and I'm like, God, I always have to be the bigger person. I always have to apologize. Even when they messed up too, they don't ever apologize to me. You know, it was really hard for me, but I think Gosh, the perfect parenting fallacy is so right there. It's not functional. It's not It's not helpful for anyone. It's not possible. But even if it were, like, when I mess up, and I do often, because my parenting default settings are real messed up, look nothing like the parent that I want to be. But it happens sometimes when I'm dysregulated, and I'm at a 7 out of 10, and my parts show up to protect me, and rage is right there right? Rage yep. is always right there these days. Fight, that's fight response, right? That's my nervous yeah. system. Like I can finally fight back. And so my nervous system is like, this is so much better than fawning and freezing. Like, let's go. Yeah. But when I do mess up, when I mess up, which happens all the time, I get to show my kids not only how to repair and what it looks like to start that conversation, to break the stalemate, to own my behavior. I get to show them how to do that. I get to show them how to see the impact, which I think is honestly more important than the apology itself. Seeing that, like, I see that I hurt you. I see how that impacted you. Yes. And apologizing, not only am I teaching them how to do that, but perhaps more importantly, I'm teaching them that they deserve that. So yes. if they get in relationships for the rest of their life and people don't repair, there are now alarm bells there going, wait a minute, now we repair. Why aren't you apologizing? Yes. Why are you just pretending that like nothing happened. Like I want those alarm bells. That is like messing up literally gives you that opportunity to teach them that and to teach them not only how to do it, but that they deserve that. And that's so important. And to like install that whole set of competencies. I also find, because for me, one of my big triggers, because I was bullied as a kid, one of my big triggers, both within the family and then, you know, with like friends, One of my big triggers is like when a slightly older child is being cruel to a younger child, like, you know, like when teasing goes from friendly teasing to like your little sister is too little and it's overstimulating her now. Right. Or even more, you know, like, you know, physically shoving and like, you know, just because I'm bigger than you, I can grab that away from you kind of thing where repair if I lash out or if I dissociate is one thing. But then being willing to sit with the child who was the aggressor in that situation and say, we do have to talk about why, what made, what made that happen? What made, what right. made it okay for you to do that? And then taking responsibility, because I actually had this conversation with one of my sons, and he said to me, well, you know, when this uncle was over and he was teasing me, you didn't do anything about it. And I honestly didn't notice it or didn't tune into it enough and didn't realize that my kid wasn't enjoying a teasing interaction Um, And maybe part of my people pleasing didn't want to make waves. I was preoccupied with like being a hostess. You know, there was a lot going on. But to stop and say, yeah, 
I didn't notice that enough. I see you're holding on to that hurt. I'm sorry. I should have noticed more. Yeah, it isn't okay for a grown-up to tease a kid, right? And I don't have to double down on it. It isn't okay for a bigger for a bigger brother to tease a littler sister. I don't have to double down on that part right then. That goes without saying, right? Yeah. If I do the part of, you know, you're right. He was a grown-up and you were a kid and he was teasing you and you didn't know how to end that and you didn't like it and it hurt you and you're telling me about it as opposed to dismissing it and being like, oh, good excuse, but you hurt your sister, right? Like, just like, you know, that wasn't okay. What should we do next time when we're around that person? Because he is a person who's pretty good at balance. Like if we told this relative, he'd be like, oh, yeah, I didn't mean to hurt his feelings. I wouldn't do that again. Like he's not uh, he's not a boundary ignorer. But like, what should we do next time? Is there a signal we could make? Because if you're in a situation like that, I don't want to I don't want to miss it again. Right. Those moments are so hard when our kids call us out, you know, for something we're doing or something we miss. And I think, again, I just think seeing it with perspectacles, like we can have so much shame come up. Like, what kind of parent am I? And then we can be in such deep shame that we don't even want to tell anyone. But the other side of it is that our kids felt safe. Like, can you imagine saying that to your parents growing up? Yeah. But you didn't do anything about this. That Like, I can't even. Yeah. God, right. We, like you created a, a safe space where he felt safe to call that out. Yeah. Right. And he needs to do it in a respectful, kind way. Sure. But like anytime our kids are calling us out, we're going to mess up. It's not a matter of if it's a matter of when it's regular and consistent for me and most of us. But like how beautiful that we are creating the space where our kids can speak up and can say, you hurt me. Like all the people who. I don't know if you get this, but I get this all the time. Like you're, I can't wait for your kids to grow up and like make a TikTok and call you out. I'm like, dude, trash your parenting to do on the that, internet. <laughs> yeah. If they need to do that, I will high five them. Honestly, like be respectful, yes. but I'm not really worried about that because I want to apologize now. Like I literally ask them, <laughs> I've hurt them. Right. Like what we I regularly said. repair now. There's not going to yeah. need to be this like redemption online it like we are already repairing as we go. I want to yeah. know when I hurt them so I and can you know, apologize. I had that once. I had a parent of someone who I was who I was helping set very appropriate boundaries. She actually was setting less strict boundaries than I personally would have, you know, set mm-hmm. in her situation. She was setting some boundaries. And her mom called me and was like, I heard that, you know, my daughter's seeing you. Of course, I didn't have consent to speak with her. So she left a voice message just ranting and raving. And one of the things she said that was so, it just struck me as so funny. I hope your kids, you're probably young, and I hope your kids will one day grow up and set boundaries against you. And I was laughing because I have an adult child and she has set boundaries with me, which is exactly what I want. I wouldn't want my daughter. I wouldn't want to call my daughter because I'm in the mood of chatting and for her to grit her teeth and be like, I am the caretaker of my mom's emotions. So even though I don't have time or interest in this conversation right now, I'm going to like talk to her. I don't want that. I want if I pick up the phone and call my daughter, she wants to talk to me, right? Yes. Of course she sets boundaries with me. That's literally the goal. I was like, when she said that, I was like, thank you. Yes. Amen. That is exactly what I want. Thank you for that wish. That is what I want. My daughter will set boundaries with me. Let's hope so. Yes. That's not, and I think like I do a lot of videos now on the estrangement after we launched the estrangement project and I get a lot of comments like you know but if I apologize to my kid that makes me a bad parent and I'm like no that makes you a good (laughs) but I think there's like older generations think that if I admit that I did something wrong that that means I'm a bad parent and we just have to call on that like so hard it's the exact opposite 
like so many of the people in our generation who've had to go no contact eventually, like really what we, we needed change in behavior too. But like for a starter conversation, it's like, I didn't realize it, but I hurt you. I can see that I hurt you and I'm sorry. <laughs> right? Like, why would we not do that? I why would, would we? That, like, I don't know. I would do that with like a, a bunny rabbit that I accidentally stepped on its tail. Why wouldn't I do that with a, with a child? Right? I know, like, right? Sorry, whoops. It's also, I think, a misnomer because I have this conversation a lot with people who are, you know, setting boundaries, maybe going no contact, maybe going very limited contact. Estrangement isn't set in stone and it isn't forever necessarily. Someone no. might come back to you. I recently had that and I was really impressed. An adult child said, I cannot be the kind of mom I want to be and also be in contact with my own mom and wrote her mom beautiful letter explaining that and saying that she is going to limit their interactions to certain social things and that's it. Like I will call you, you know, once a week to say like, have a nice week, but like that's it. Or I will, you know, come to certain family events, but that's it. And then got a call from the mom's therapist um, you know, obviously with consent from everybody, she wants to start engaging in the process of repair. Is her daughter open to that? Beautiful. There that you go. Joyful. Her daughter was thrilled. She was thrilled. We are on this journey. The two therapists, the two, and you know, the mom, because the mom feels safe with her therapist around, totally mm -hmm. understandable. The daughter feels safe with me around, totally understandable. They are forging a beautiful relationship. Mm. It is, there's so much healing that's happening. Mm -hmm. In the end, I said this to my patient, you are helping make the grandma your kids need, right? Like you always mm -hmm. said, this was your biggest fear that your kids won't have grandparents. Look what you're doing by holding that boundary. And I think the mom had, there was a lot of love there. There was just a lot of smothering and a lot of anxiety that the mom didn't even realize she had. What she mm -hmm. saw as love was actually anxiety and over control and a desire mm -hmm. to manage her children's lives um, to, to a yes. long degree. But it's going to be a beautiful relationship. It's going to be the yeah. strongest relationship. I think this misnomer that estrangement is forever, estrangement's yeah. a step. Sometimes it's forever because that's as close as I will ever be able to tolerate, right? I always say these mm -hmm. boundaries are about how close I am comfortable being with you. It's not about how mm -hmm. far I'm comfortable being with you. Mm -hmm. So for some people, that boundary is like I can wave at you from a distance. And for some people, that's like I want to talk to you every day. It's still a boundary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, when we had the idea for the estrangement project, Abby, she's at you, the mother on Instagram yeah. and TikTok. She and I actually went to record for her podcast and we both were like, oh, your mom's like my mom. Um, and then we were like, I'm not ready to talk, but let's come back. And so we did for the first time talk publicly together. And then I got the idea like six months later. I was like, we need to do something for other women. And I guess men too, but I think I feel like it's mostly for women who are estranged from their moms. Because when yeah. I started Googling, there was nothing out there or specifically around mother wound and estrangement. And so, boy, <laughs> the messages and the emails we get and the hate we get. I just I think estrangement's a little bit trendy, maybe. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Would you ever have thought that was possible? But it is a last resort. Like it's not a flippant, it's years and years of trying and trying and desperately trying and therapy and trying to invite the parent to therapy and then refusing to go to th like and making fun of the therapist like it's yes. it's like the very very last thing you do and nothing else people, works here's this thing that i i don't understand why people don't get this no one leaves something that's comfortable and cozy and good for them and healthy people don't right. leave those things right? right so like when when someone tells me oh yeah my daughter I, I hear this sometimes from people like my daughter went to therapy and five minutes later her life was fine everything was great and then all of a sudden she cut off from me yeah, maybe things weren't so great. 
that doesn't happen. When things are so great, there's a lot of ignored boundaries and a lot of real estate and a lot of trying to say and trying to put things into words and sending signals. No one just wakes up one morning and is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to change my nail polish color and cut off from my parents and like, you know, go out for pizza. Like, that's not how that type of decision is. Well, and it, it goes against biology. Yeah. Like, it's not natural. To cut off your parents, especially your mother, I feel like. But I, I think yeah. it's there for father's father wound as well. But like it, it is overriding your body's biological needs to have to do that. It, and you will still crave it and need it and want it and have to talk yourself down from reengaging in an abusive and neglectful relationship. Like, And it's the same thing with siblings and it's the same thing with extended family members. When a relationship was valuable to us, when a relationship was like important in our childhood, like a person had an influence on our lives, we don't want to cut it off. We want right. to repair it, right? We, right? Nobody like just wants, it's always the last resort. You know, and I hear people saying like, people just don't want to do the work of relationships nowadays. If by the no. work you mean holding on to your own stress and then and then perpetuating that onto your kids, yeah, sure, that takes a lot of work, but that's not the work of relationships. When you set boundaries and they're ignored and you set boundaries and they're ignored and you explain yourself and it's ignored, what else are you going to do? Boundaries yeah. are there for a reason. Yeah, when people, most people in my life at this point know that I'm estranged from my mom but I, in the early days when they would kind of give me that look like, who does that? I started saying, okay, I want you to imagine how bad would things have to be for you to even consider cutting your mom off? How badly would she have to treat you? Just get your head there for a second. That's what we're talking about. Like it's beyond, I can't even explain to you, right? Like yeah. that's the level that we're at. It's incomprehensible. I feel it's like it's not a like flippant decision. Yeah, it's not a flippant decision. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's because it's such a threatening thought, because maybe someone who hears about it thinks, oh, my gosh, does that mean that I have to, like, pay attention to relationship and parent with presence so that my kids will always be comfortable relating with me? Ooh, that's too scary. So let me, like, judge Maggie on Instagram, you know? Oh, my gosh, 100 percent. Yeah, it's hitting their squishy stuff and they're lashing out from a place of shame. Yeah, from a place of shame. But, always, you know, I feel like so often, like when we do the work of boundaries and when we do that and when we establish that, there certainly is a learning curve. There are sometimes people who simply didn't know. They're just perpetuating a cycle. And then when they're told, it takes a few false starts, but they, they can figure it out. There are people like oh, that. Yeah. It's not like, you know, it's not like we have like, okay, somebody's boundary list, so therefore we cut off. Sometimes we educate them about boundaries and they're like, oh, Okay, then that's what I'll do. It takes time, but they figure it out. I I remember having a conversation with somebody in my parenting class where she did not understand boundaries with a very close friend of hers. And the friend was starting to send her signals like this friendship is too intense. And as she was raising it, saying like, well, let's hear what let's hear what your friend's saying. She's saying, I really want you to ask me before you text me a whole thing about like how your day is and vent. First, ask me if it's a good time for me to hear that's a reasonable request. Can you honor it? Yeah. You don't have to lose the friendship. She's not dropping you. She's informing you what her boundaries are. And I remember right. this woman just looking at me and being like, oh, that's like what you've been teaching in class about our kids too. Like, oh, like the penny <laughs> drop. Like, I get it. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's intensely respectful of another human. But don't we want, when we say respect, that's what respect is, right? You are yeah. human and I honor that. I am human and you honor yeah. that. 
so much of that is so hard when you grew up in a codependent enmeshed situation. Like it's still occasionally, I feel like I've done a lot of work there, but still occasionally there'll be a little something, a little expectation I have or something. And I'm just kind of like, that's not normal, you know, but I think when you've come, you've come from the codependence and you've come from no boundaries, literally, right? right? It's a free for all. It's hard to have like healthy adult friendships and not just intimate partner relationships, but just friendships, right? It's tricky. And I tried it so hard to have compassion, right? For people. I mean, I think at this point, most of my squad is like other therapists, (laughs) you know, people who've done a lot of work, we all kind of are in that space. But when I meet new people, I try really hard when there's the red flags to just kind of like perspectacles on like this looks like a codependency. And when you've been raised in it, it's all you've ever known. It seems normal. And like you wouldn't have alarm bells to tell you otherwise, because that's what was normal. I noticed it in my parenting classes. And then I started like including modules on, especially when we were doing in-person classes, that there Mm -hmm. was a tremendous potential for trauma bonding, because what would happen is. Two women would meet each other. Mostly my classes were women, right? So like two women would meet each other and one woman would talk about like a really critical parent and the other woman would be like, me too. And then this friendship would form that's like based on, I see your trauma and I get it. You see my trauma and you get it. But then that's all the friendship's based on and it can become overly close very fast. And of course, neither of them were modeled appropriate boundaries. So I have to talk about that. Like, it's normal to make friends in class. I want us to make friends. I want us to be each other's support. And the potential for trauma bond is high. So let's understand mm-hmm. what a trauma bond is because a trauma bond is objectification. You're the receptacle for my trauma. I'm the receptacle for, for yours. Boundaries, if you think about it, is all about resisting objectification. I'm a real human, not just the person you vent to, not just the person in the family who carries the load of the family, not just the daughter, not ju- right? I am a human with a whole independent reality. <laughs> Besides for this one part of identity as your friend, we have to remember that we don't want to objectify our kids. The only time objectification is normal is when a little, when a newborn baby is objectifying their mom as like, you are the source of comfort. And that's why I think for post-traumatic parents Mm -hmm. who've been objectified and who've been experienced that lack of boundaries, it's so scary because it's like, you just taught me about boundaries and now this baby doesn't understand boundaries. And it's like, right, the one time it's normal. You know, and that to me is that thing that I'm constantly thinking about and talking about. For me, I had a moment of clarity because the family member who was the person who I'm estranged from, who was abusive to me, at one point called me up and basically informed me I'd be doing this person a favor. And I said, no, I'm not going to be doing that favor. It was very clear. It's not a favor I could do. And the person said, well, what use are you to me if you don't do me a favor? And like, literally, it felt like a voice from the an internal voice said, mm-hmm. thank you for saying that, because now I realize the whole problem with our relationship. You see, I wasn't put on this planet to be of use to you. Mm-hmm. It's literally not my job in life. I think it was helpful that I had kids because I'm like, I was put on this earth to be their parent. But aside from that, I was put on this earth as a human with rights not to be of use to you. And it was such mm-hmm. a moment of clarity that it was like, I remember just like journaling about it because I was like in my car and pulling over and like voice noting a journal because I never want to lose this clarity again. Gosh, that reminds me. You mind if I tell a quick story? Yeah, of sure. a moment I got triggered recently. <laughs> so, because so many times I find coaching and counseling clients just feel really ashamed of like the crazy thoughts inside. <laughs> and I just want to encourage everybody listening to 
get curious about them, know that we all have them. A couple weeks ago, so I have a five and a half, almost six-year-old and an an almost nine-year-old. And my five and a half-year-old, my son, is just in a rough spot. He's right smack in the middle of a developmental leap. He's hardcore disequilibrium. And every time you tell him no, it's just like Hulk smash (laughs) mode right now. It's exhausting. And so the mornings, my husband has to go to work early. So the mornings are just me and it's been rough. And a couple weeks ago, I was getting their, I was filling up their water bottles for school. And I was trying to get them to like put their shoes on, brush their teeth, that kind of stuff. And I had this moment, this part of me said, if you cared about me, you would do what I asked. Yes. And I was like, ugh. Like that is probably words that were said to me. I don't really consciously remember it. But like when you have those moments where that part of you says that thing, I want you to go, what'd you just say? Say it again. Like that is some healing that I need to do right? Like healing is a long journey. It's peeling the onion. And like that day, that was what was coming up for me. I don't need to be ashamed of that. That's not mine to own. I didn't make those words up. They're not in my head because I said them and I thought of them. They're in my head because that's how I was raised. Right. And so I can go, huh, okay, interesting. So some part of me thinks that my child not listening means they don't care about me. Okay. So that means it's my job, my child's job to care about me and like take care of me. Huh. Look at that. And like, it helps me know myself better. It helps guide me to what within me needs to be healed. And it helps me to break that cycle because I will never say that to my kids, you know? Because really curiosity is so counter shaming. And like, I think that you being able to access that curiosity, like, oh man, where is this coming from? Like, (laughs) of course he loves me and he doesn't want to accept a no right now. Right. And it's not his job to take care of me. Right. Right. And, and, and it's totally his job to be like in that like exuberant, beerly toddler, beerly child stage where like he's all over the place with his desires and like, you know, his curiosity, right? Like it's so right. normal. But don't, I think so often parents will kind of push that down because they're ashamed. They think yeah. I, I should know better. I remember how bad it was to be treated like that as a kid. I should never have these thoughts. Like I have them all the time. I yeah. had this like watershed moment with my kids where my daughter yelled at my son And like them and she was in a shame spiral. And so she like runs off and I'm, and she like scared him. And so then I'm like, so I walk around our like great room and I'm like over pouring coffee on the other side of the room, just trying to, cause I knew if I went in, I was going to be like seeing red and like way too dysregulated to be calm. And so I'm just sitting there and I'm trying to like get my feet under me. And my son, they always do this for each other. Like anytime they get hurt, anytime somebody's sick, any really anytime anybody's upset, they run to get the other's um, favorite stuffed animal. That's like what they do. So not just when like, it's funny because when I posted this video, a lot of people were like, well, I don't think that's a good dynamic. Like anytime, anytime they do this all the time. But Oliver ran to get Allie her stuffed animal. And so he's walking across the room and I'm watching this. And my first thought is, oh, that's so sweet. And then my second thought is, well, look at that. He's being so kind to you, not that you freaking deserve it. And it was like, oh, there it is. That's why I believe I don't deserve love. Because when I messed up, I was made to feel like I didn't deserve love. I didn't deserve affection. I didn't deserve attention. I didn't deserve good things. Right. And so then subsequent times when like my kid is disrespectful and then they ask for a snack and a part of me wants to be like, you don't deserve that right now. It's like, it's okay that I have that thought. I don't say it. Right. It stays inside. But like that is something within me that needs to heal. 
Like if I'm going yeah. to break that cycle for my kids, I've got to confront that thought and I've yes. got to get curious about it and go, huh, there's a part of me that feels like I need to say this to my kid or make my kid feel this terrible way. Like that doesn't make me a bad mom. Yes. And like that getting curious and that noticing all the voices and like being okay with like whoever comes to visit. Oh, that voice came. Oh, that voice came. Oh, that thought came. <laughs> like they can all come. They're all welcome yeah. to come. So much of our distress comes from trying to push those thoughts mm. and voices away. I feel like that's the biggest reason why I dissociate because like when I'm trying to like not feel or not think something, like think it. It's okay. Yeah. It, it took me a very long time to say, you know, this is this is okay. All emotions are welcome. You know, they're not always convenient in the moment, but they're all welcome. And all emotions, just because they're here, doesn't mean I have to act on them. They're just here. Mm. They're just informing me. I don't have to do more. Well, and they're always that. a reflection, too. It's not like you made yeah. that up. Like, that's in there because somebody else said it. Yeah. Somebody else made you feel that way. That's not yours to own. Right. All in that way, like all parenting is reparenting, all learning is relearning, Mm -hmm. you know, like we're always able to just get curious. Like there's nothing that's not okay. I always say this to people in therapy, right? There's nothing that you can't say to me, right? There's nothing that's not okay to bring up in this room. It's always safe to bring things up. And if it doesn't feel safe, tell me because it's my job to make sure it feels safe, right? And we have to do that with our own parts. It's always okay to have those thoughts right? To think them, to repair if we utter them out loud or, you know, act on them in mm-hmm. a way that we didn't mean to, right? All of those things are completely okay. Yeah, It's just that I feel like for me, watching the way the pressures of the world and the way, you know, for me, that's the hardest part. When your kid does come in contact with that adult who has a lot of power, who isn't going to be that present, responsive person? You know, that's the thing that I tend to struggle with. Like, mm, like I haven't fully dealt with that. Like fear worried of like about your kids? Like, will this adult like lash out because, you know, you better be respectful or you better, you know, mm. do this or that. Where sometimes as a parent, I can be that mama bear who's going to like, you know, who's going to intervene for my kid and argue right. back and push back because that's my job. I think adults should be the ones who discuss things with adults, right? Kids mm-hmm. should not be in the position of having to stand up for themselves against adults. Like that's yep. just unfair. But that to me is the fear that I grapple with. Can I speak to that? Sure. When I, I was seeing cl- counseling clients full time and I'm not seeing counseling clients anymore at this point, I'm focusing more on coaching because of burnout. But when I was seeing counseling clients, I mostly saw teens. Like I saw, eight and up, but mostly teens. So I've worked with a lot of kids and I've kind of seen this from that standpoint, you know, and often when I was working, counseling the children, I parent coached the parents generally. And so we would see these shifts. But as a parent, I have an eight, almost nine-year-old. And we had a run-in about a year ago where a a grown-up in my daughter's life made some comment like, I thought we agreed that you weren't going to do that. Hmm. And she came running to me. It was like alarm bells. And she was like, this person said this. That's messed up, right? And I was like, "Mm -hmm." Like, I think to turn this whole like snowflakes thing, we got to toughen up kids on their head, to turn that on its head. Like when we make kids feel consistently like there's something wrong with them, like they're a disappointment, like nothing they do is ever good enough, right? Then when other people, grown-ups make them feel that way it's like well yeah that makes sense I'm told that a lot and I think 
And that's another, like in all my work around, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. It's just a devastating phrase. I get a lot of pushback everywhere on that. And parents will be like, but our kids need to know how to deal with people being disappointed in them. And I'm like, okay. I mean, they're going to break their arm. We don't need to break it for them. And so I think when we decide, I mean, our kids are going to be disappointed in things. They themselves are going to experience disappointment that they can't go to that thing, that that birthday party got canceled, like whatever. They're going to feel disappointment. We don't need to worry about that. But like when we put that on them and we make it their fault and their job and about who they are, instead of the thing they did, we make it about them. That's what shame does. Shame encourages them to think I'm bad, not that was bad. The thing I did was bad. It's like this internalized belief that I don't deserve love. I'm bad. Then when other people come along and say that, they're like, well, yeah, I'm told that a lot. Yep, that that lines up with what I'm being told at home. On the contrary, when we don't say that stuff and we give kids her spectacles, right? My daughter, without any prompting, came straight to me and told me and was like, that's not okay, right? It's messed up that he said that, right? And I was like, yes, it is. And it's happened when people say, be good. They'll like wink at me. If people say I'm disappointed, she'll like, I, she had some, one of her, like, I don't know, teaching assistants or something at school last year was like, I'm disappointed. And she was like, let them be disappointed. I didn't do anything wrong. And she hadn't, like, obviously there was a time that she had, right? Like we teach them, you take accountability, right? When you mess up. In this case, it was stupid. The thing that the person said. And so I feel like it's almost like we're shame proofing them. It's like, we're giving them we're helping them understand that that's not okay for people to do where like I had alarm bells in the wrong places. I feel like when we raise kids this way and they encounter grownups that do say these things and make them feel these ways, there are alarm bells that go off. They're like, no, you're not supposed to talk to me like that. This sounds like a you problem, not a me problem. You know, this is very comforting for me to hear because it's true. I'm thinking of times in like my, I have a, I have a daughter who's an outgoing, confident kid. Like by nature, she has a lot of confidence inside of her. And sometimes adults misinterpret that. But Mm -hmm. we had one experience where I had to push back on her behalf, where a, I guess it was like a student teacher, teacher's aide kind of person was asking her personal questions about me. I think like seeing me on social media and stuff, you know, knowing maybe friends of hers who were in therapy with me, I'm just projecting, Mm -hmm. but like she had some. So she was asking my daughter questions that were not appropriate to be asking. And my daughter pushed back very calmly and just said, I think those are the questions you should ask my mom. Like, you know, if you want to know about like, like she said something like, you know, like, what kind of food does your mom serve for dinner? And like, what happens in your house? Like your mom teaches parenting classes. So what's a typical night in your house? Like my daughter was like, you should ask my mom, right? Those Mm -hmm. are questions for my mom. And then a principal reached out to me and was and said, I don't know, there's something like kind of disrespectful about the way she just answered this. She kind of shut down this person. And I said, well, good. She set a boundary. It wasn't appropriate. This person is asking questions that she should. She felt like there was an engine driving. I think my daughter got the sense. There's an engine driving this that isn't about me. This isn't okay. I feel like kid versus adult. There's already a power imbalance here. So she yep. said, yeah, if you have a question about my mom, ask my mom, you know. That's not disrespectful. Not How the hell is that disrespectful? Yeah. Right, not, not at all. Because yeah, she, she wasn't was a good confidence. kid. She didn't she's supposed to be like, she's supposed to be compliant and, and obedient and like right. self-sacrificing and self-abandoning. No. Yeah. 
She didn't say but we I had think chicken for dinner last night, you know, or whatever. Circling back to your comment earlier, I think this is what happens when we raise kids in a world where they're allowed to have a voice, where they're allowed to express that they yeah. don't like that thing that just happened, where they're allowed to be mad at us. Like that, there's like this foundation that we have to lay where it's safe for them to express their feelings, even when we don't agree with each other. Like it's so important for our kids to be able to be mad at us. For the boundary that we set. So many people think that's disrespect. That's just that them having a human emotional reaction to a thing that they don't like that happened. I'm not going to say that them becoming aggressive is okay. We're going to hold strong boundaries around verbal aggression, physical aggression, right? Like going after the sibling, whatever, but like they're allowed to have a reaction. They're allowed to have a yeah. voice. And I think you're that's like, be, you're allowed to be like, you know, disappointed right in that sense of in that no right yesterday the ice cream truck came to my neighborhood and my kids wanted ice cream and we had already had dessert and I said no you know tonight is not a good night for the ice cream truck Mm -hmm. and one of my kids was really upset you're allowed to be upset you're allowed to be disappointed and it's still no we're not going to the ice cream truck tonight right well because so often and I say this in parenting with perspectives the thing is not the thing right you right. might have caught your son if it's a big meltdown, which I don't know if it was last night. But when my kids have a big yeah. meltdown about something that seems stupid and small, that's because they've been bottling up their feelings all the way up to 10. And the thing that sets all of us off at 10 is not the thing that we're really upset about. It's right. not about that last straw. It's about all these other things. And so if we can hold space and let them fall into it about that thing that set them off, we know perspectives on it's not about the ice cream. Right. It's about all this other stuff that they've been holding on to. And if we can make it safe for them to have this overreaction to the ice cream, we're not going to like, oh, baby, I know. Keep crying. We're not going to encourage it. But like if we can just step back and let our child's body do what it needs to do, it's trying to clear all of that. Right. It's not about the thing. Right. It's not about the thing. And it's also not. I feel like there's such a misnomer that we're somehow raising kids who are never allowed to have negative emotions or or uncomfortable emotions. Right. They're allowed to feel their feelings. It's okay to be sad that we didn't get the ice cream. It's okay to be disappointed about that. For me, where where my like inner child would go would be like, you don't appreciate everything I do for you. And, you know, like all of my abandonment stuff, all of my being a little adult, you know, when I was a child, like trying to do everything, right? Like you don't appreciate, you don't see how hard I work. You don't see all that I do for you, right? Like you don't think I'm a good enough mom, right? Like yeah. you're sad. You want an ice cream. Today's on well, and that circles back to the good kid thing and something I say a lot, and that is that we have it all wrong. The kids and the grownups, honestly, who are doing so well, like think about it. Think that last time somebody you know went through something hard, child or adult, doing so well means you would never know they were going through it. It's how well are they pretending that they're not going through this hard thing yeah. is basically what you're asking. And so I've had so many times where a parent will call and their kids are struggling because of a high conflict divorce or right. Like something traumatic that's happened to the family or a move or something. And she'll typically the mom's calling and the mom will want the like strong-willed kid, the difficult one. That's who she's really calling about. That kid is being disrespectful and defiant. And like, it's really, they're really showing and they're so concerned with that kid. And Every single time I'm like, okay, well, tell me about the other kid. And she's like, oh, we don't, we'll get to them when we get to them. And I'm like, no, no, she's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Your family has been through something really hard. Is there a child that actually seems to be just fine? Like you never even know they've gone through it. And usually it's like, yeah, they're doing so well. And I'm like, here's the thing. They're not like, that's the child I need to see first. All the children need support. I use 
what you're saying is so true. I always call this being a duck. You know, like the analogy of like the duck is like floating. I was like that. I was the duck and I was a valedictorian. I was head of a student like service council. I was going off to college, great marks. You know, I was like every marker that Freud would say, right? I was like living. I was loving in the sense that, you know, I had good friends. I was in a social group. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like in the romantic attachment yet phase, but I was like, I was a good kid. Everything was great. I was a duck and under the surface, my legs were paddling and churning and working so, 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 so hard. But you wouldn't have known it at the surface. On the surface, I was like poster child for like the good kid. Yep. Good kids spend their whole lives recovering. They're suffering in silence. We've got to look at this completely differently. If I see a child and I hear that they or if my kid goes through something traumatic at school, right? And they seem fine. I'm like, wait, but where's the stuff, right? Right. Show it to me. You're bottling it. You don't need to hold on to that. I'm here to help you with it, right? And then when they do push back, I'm like, oh God, they're getting it out. Thank you. Here it is. Right. I don't want them to push that down and pretend. I want them to get it out. And that with kids is going to look like the resistance. They resist to release, to regulate. They can't get regulated without resisting because that's how they release. With teenagers in therapy, I say this all the time, like I had a kid once in therapy who was, you know, yelling the entire session. And my secretary, you know, afterwards was like, oh, no, that sounds like that was a bad session. I was like, that was a fabulous session. When she sits there with her headphones in and doesn't look at me, right, I, you know, my alarm bells are up. Something's really not okay right now yelling and cursing and screaming on top of her lungs. That was fabulous. Give her a safe space to release. Because when the kids, from a self-worth standpoint, a child who has to hold everything in and pretend they're fine and always be fine, it's devastating on their self-worth and their their nervous system. Like they're in chronic dysregulation. They're going to move into dissociation at some point if they can't have their release. Like we've got to make it safe for children to have regular emotional release is taking that balloon and letting the air out. And it's not fun. Like I don't enjoy the meltdowns, but they're so important. Yeah, but they're also like, they're not fun, but they're also like at some point when you get used to it, they're not as threatening anymore. It's sort of like, okay. It's like learning how to change a diaper, right? The first time you're like, oh my gosh, I am so shocked at the wide variety of colors and smells that baby's poop can be. (laughs) And then you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, there was a diaper. This is a good thing. This baby's body's doing its job. It's okay. Like, right. When you're a first time mom and you see that like intensity of a toddler meltdown and you think, oh, yeah. my gosh, something's so wrong. No, this yep. is kind of part of the process. It's like the it's like the diapers. It's like the vomit. It's like those things that we have to deal with. And like, it's fine. It's not that like, you know, that first time that you're so shocked after a while. Yeah. You're like, this is something I expect. This is okay. We will get through right. this. It's just not as it's not as terrifying as it is the first few times when you really don't know where to put yourself. Yeah, that was my experience. But then I worked through some of my mom's rage trauma. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for a while, it triggered me hard. Like, I just think being raged at by a grown up, and then yeah. being raged at by a child just felt very like, I remember one time I found myself saying, why are you yelling at me? I haven't done anything wrong. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's little Maggie talking. Right. And so it's okay if like, it's hard sometimes, like that's probably because your body needs to heal something. There's something that's getting triggered. And when we're getting triggered, it's because our body wants us to heal. Well, we can develop a tolerance to the yelling and we can release all the stuff that comes up. Like I remember I used to have to have a big cry after 
right? That was, yeah. I could hold it together through. I was like ready to explode with rage. And then when I could finally step away, it was like the tears just came. I would have this big cry. And that's important for me to have that release, right? Because I had an emotionally unstable parent who went from zero to reaching all the time without right. warning. And so when my child gets to a certain age, and I don't know if it's because something really traumatic happened. I think my daughter was like six. Something I don't know if something happened when I was six. And like it unlocked yeah. this trauma from when I was six, when she was six, and it triggered me in just the right way. Yes. Like it's okay if stuff is a little bit of a roller coaster. And when your body is getting triggered, you just need to like trust it. Trust yeah. that this is triggering me for a reason. It's incredibly normal that when our kids hit an age or stage where we went through something, that we get really dysregulated. We get really, it hits us. For me, when my oldest daughter turned 16, I was having like panic attacks out of nowhere. I couldn't figure out what they were about. Was in therapy. My therapist was really helpful, but she couldn't quite help me. Like anything she floated, I'd be like, eh, maybe. It just wasn't, couldn't figure it out until I was sitting with like a fellow post-traumatic parent who said to me, well, think about what life was like when you were 16. I wonder if there's a part of your brain that says, like has alarm bells, like 16 is really dangerous, right? Like 16 is when your dad dies. 16 is when you develop PTSD. 16 is when you do CPR, when you when you have flashbacks, when all of this stuff, you know, my life had been traumatic till then, but this was like a big one, right? In that sense, mm -hmm. like this was one that was frozen in time for me. And that was right. Like she got it. And it was like, yes, that's there it. it is. These are those panic attacks. 16 is dangerous. There's always a reason. And I think that can go both ways. Like there are times that my kid is acting in a way that wouldn't have been safe for me to act. And so parts of me want to shut her down to protect yes. her from what would have happened to me. And then there are times like oh, raising children when you have trauma from a narcissist, it's just like next level, like the entitlement, acting arrogant, right? right? When my child is reminding me of someone who's hurt me, in this case, it's always that one parent. Like sometimes parts of me who had to be silenced and had to hold my tongue and like fawn and over apologize and all those things. Now I don't have to do that anymore. And sometimes my rage part just wants to say it, like wants to fight back this time. And so yeah. I think just trusting that there's always a reason you're not crazy. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. Like your body is trying its hardest to keep you safe. And sometimes we project that onto our kids and it's trying hard to keep them safe. It's so true that like so often, like our reaction to our kid is not about our kid. Mm -hmm. And like the minute we can say that, the minute we can see that, it takes time to like integrate that and to be like, this is not mm -hmm. about my kid. So my reaction has to be about my kid because yep. this is the relationship I'm currently in. It's a really hard, it sounds so deceptively simple. It's such work at some point in my life. And I wonder if one time we should talk about this in the future I want to talk about boundaries with parents who aren't narcissistic, because I think that, you know, a lot of times people come in and they'll say things to me like, you know, my mom, she doesn't really fit narcissism, but like being parented by her. And it's like, well, that's because there are other personality disorders. I, yeah. and I have people who are like, there are like, besides narcissism, <laughs> <Yeah>. there's, there's, <laughs> there's a whole bunch. Like, <laughs> yeah, especially like histrionic or OCD, yeah. right? There's a lot of yeah. personality disorders that can really mess up a parent's mm -hmm. ability to parent. And yeah. so then it's confusing when people read information about like a narcissistic parent and it doesn't quite fit them, but it sometimes fits them, mm -hmm. that I feel like there's like a lot of education that has to yes. happen based upon that because it creates its own whole 
it's like very, it's sort of predictable traumas that it creates. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a really good point. Yep. It's interesting to live in the, in the era of TikTok and Instagram. And I mean, I love how many therapists are showing up and like putting information out there for free. Like it's amazing, but because of its short form, right? The shorter yes. form, the better it, it engages or whatever. And so it's so often there's critical nuances missed. Because how many times do you have people coming to you like self-diagnosing off TikTok and Instagram? Like, oh, I'm just sure. like, oh, God. <laughs> right. Like, it's, you know? it's so helpful. And it's so and it can be so I feel like also a shallow understanding of something mm-hmm. is sometimes worse than no understanding at all. It can you be. Know? Yeah. Because then we have to unlearn and then yeah. we learn and then right. understand. But the consciousness raising and people being able to be like, mm-hmm. oh, there is another way of doing this. There are other moms who are going through this. That part right. is invaluable. Like, oh, that. that part is incredible. And I really think we're in the middle of a parenting revolution. I think we are. There's just a, there's a reconciliation. There's a, re- what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but there's this moment of like uprising that like the current system is falling and, and like crumbling to pieces and everybody is like, not that anymore. And it's you know really profound. In? This is like my, now my like geek PhD part is showing, like the, the part of me that just wants to research all day. But you know that thing like with, where Hegel says like there's like, you know, thesis and antithesis and then it comes to synthesis. I feel mm-hmm. like we're in antithesis right now. Like mm-hmm. we're the antithesis of everything, you know, that was done and like we're in that mode. And eventually there's going to be a certain synthesis where people are going to make sense mm. of everything, but we're on like one swing of the pendulum. We and are. I think it's an interesting moment to be like researching in, writing in, and like on social media in, because yeah. I feel like there's going to be certain truths that are going to come out through this like ongoing dialogue that we're having on social media. And then we're going to be like, why didn't we always know that? Because we couldn't have. Right. We we'll get there. Yep. The process. But that's where I think we're at. We're at this like we're at this pendulum that's swinging and like we're not mm-hmm. yet at the place of perspective, but we will be. Mm-hmm. And it's such a in some ways such a hopeful time. Mm-hmm. Like for me, post-traumatic, someone once said to me, like post-traumatic parenting, that just sounds so depressing. Mm. Like, that's what you do all day. Talk oh, about no. trauma, I think it sounds like, amazing. It's nothing but like, thank you, because to me, yeah. it's like nothing but hopeful. Like right? trauma therapy is the most hopeful thing that you can yeah. possibly do because I'm focusing on the therapy part, not the trauma part, right? Like coming to a new understanding of our traumas and evolving, mm-hmm. like that's beyond joyful. Yeah. Yes, it can be hard to hear really sad stories multiple times in a row. Yes, we have to do things right. about like our own bodies and our mirror neurons. When we hear sad things, we yep. take on the stress. We have to learn to release it. Sure. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. But in the end, it's hopeful. <clears throat> well, and I think ex- there's the joy that I feel, and it's profound joy, when people feel seen. When I show up in a way and I share my thing or I share this insight I've had and people feel seen and known and they let go of some of that, there's something wrong with me. I, you know, why they, they finally connect the dots for why they've been struggling with this thing because it comes back to this thing like that feeling of helping people feel seen and known as good enough and, and yes. releasing all of that is just profound. Important. Profoundly joyful. Mm-hmm. And it's hopeful. And 
I feel like I feel like that's how you and I connected. Like I saw mm-hmm. I saw your videos and I just said like, okay, this woman gets me. Like this woman gets what it means to be a cycle breaker, even though our traumas are very different and we live mm-hmm. very different lives and we're, our kids are at different ages. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter when it comes right. to like breaking a cycle. No. Important work. Most important work we'll ever do. Sure. Thank you so much for being on for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And Thank you for having I me. look forward. I just look forward to continuing to interact with you because I think you're a fountain of wisdom and you really know, you really understand boundaries and estrangement in a way that you couldn't unless you had lived it. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.